We are returning today to our study through the Gospel of John. So take your copy of God's Word and open it with me to John chapter 12. We'll begin in a moment in verse 27. John 12, verses 27 through 36. Rembrandt is considered one of the greatest artists in history. His works line the hallways of some of the greatest museums. One of his most famous pieces of art is a print called The Three Crosses. It depicts that scene on Golgotha's hill where Jesus died. And if you look at that print, probably the first thing you notice is the cross in the middle, and you notice the cross to the left and to the right, and perhaps you notice the crowd of people around the cross But one thing you may not notice is that there in the crowd to the side was Rembrandt himself. He literally etched himself into the picture standing near the cross. Well, in a similar way, in order to really see the cross, we have to see ourselves in the picture, so to speak. We have to see the role that we played. Christ died for us. He took our place. Our sins held him there. And when we begin to see the cross in this way, it really changes us. It changes how we think. It changes how we think about God, how we think about ourselves, how we think about all of life. I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said about the cross. He said, quote, if you can look at the cross and not fall prostrate on the ground, you've never really seen it. And I believe there's great truth in that statement. In our passage this morning, Jesus speaks very candidly and very personally about the cross We've been away from John for a while, so let me remind you, in the verses before, Jesus compared himself to a single grain that falls to the ground and dies, but then it is raised up as a head of wheat. And just like that grain, Jesus said he too must fall and die. He will be buried, but he will be raised on the third day. He takes that illustration and then he applies it to us and said that he who loves his life will lose it, but he who hates his life will keep it for eternal life. In other words, following Jesus means dying to self. There is a sense in which we must die to self when we come to Christ. So having called upon us in the verses before to take up our cross and follow him, we get to verse 27, and now it's as if he's inviting us to come a little closer, to take a closer look at the cross. And as we do so, there's some things that we're going to see about the cross that will change us if we really see it. Three things in particular that I want you to notice that the cross accomplished. First of all, we see the glory the cross reveals. The glory 
the cross reveals. Look with me in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Jesus said, my soul is troubled. That word trouble means to shake. If you could imagine someone bigger than you, stronger than you, grabbing you by the shoulders and shaking you hard. On a spiritual level, that's how Jesus felt as he neared the cross. He said, my soul is troubled His soul was troubled because he knew what was waiting for him. And yes, that included the physical torment of crucifixion and everything that came with it. But really, that was just the beginning. Jesus was troubled because he knew that soon he would suffer the Father's wrath against sin. Soon, he himself would become accursed. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Think about this curse of the law or having broken the law. The curse of sin that fell upon this world when the very first sin took place in the Garden of Eden. Think about this curse and everything that it has brought upon this world all throughout the years Every tragedy, every heartbreak, every catastrophe, every sickness, every disease, every tear that was ever shed at every funeral, all of this pain and all of this suffering down through the years, all of that is the curse of sin. And Paul said, when Jesus died on the cross, he became that curse for us. No wonder his soul was troubled. So if your soul has ever been troubled, and maybe, to be honest, you are there this morning, let me remind you, Jesus knows. And he understands. He has been there. The one who was troubled, knows how to deliver you from whatever trouble you are going through, and he knows how to turn your trouble into a testimony. Jesus' soul was troubled, but notice how he responds. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Remember back in verse 23, this hour that Jesus is referring to is not a literal hour. This hour refers to the time of suffering and that time when soon he will die. That hour is his appointment with the cross. And so Jesus asked a question. Will I ask my father to save me from this hour? And then he immediately answers his own question and he says, no, I won't run. I'm not going to flee. He says, I came here for this. I don't know how many of you know this, but the army rangers have a motto in Latin, which when you translate it into English, 
It means, does anybody know? I chose this. So when these rangers, these special forces, are in the heat of battle, they say to themselves, I chose this. When they are asked to make tremendous sacrifices, they say, I chose this. When they are asked to accept great risk, even the risk of death, they say, I chose this. And likewise, when Jesus neared the cross, he said, I came for this purpose. In other words, I chose this. And then he prayed in verse 28, and notice his prayer. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. What a simple but amazing prayer. Here is Jesus. He's getting ready to suffer like no man has ever suffered before. And he prays. And what is his prayer? Father, glorify your name. In other words, Father, take this suffering that I am about to go through and be glorified in it. Now, what does that word glorify mean here? It simply means to put something on display. To put, for example, the attributes of God on display. To put his greatness and his majesty on display. When we think about glorifying God and what that means, I've often compared it to a spider web that is intricately designed And in the day, in the bright light of the sun, yes, it is glorious, but you can hardly see it. But then when morning comes and the dew covers that uh, web, all of a sudden, its glory becomes visible. Those drops clinging to the web put on display the glory that is already there. When we seek to glorify God, we don't say anything or do anything that would make God more glorious than he already is. But through our words, through our actions, through our lives, we seek to put God's glory on display for a world that is watching all around us. Jesus prays that the Father would be glorified through the cross. And the Father responds audibly. And he says... I have, and I will. In other words, Jesus' life had already glorified God. Everything about him brought glory to the Father. Everything he ever said or did put God's glory on display. For example, when Jesus walked on water, he displayed God's power. When Jesus cast out demons, he displayed God's authority. When he touched the leper, he displayed God's compassion. Every time Jesus spoke, everything Jesus did in all of his life, the Father was glorified. And now he comes to this point, speaking of his hour of suffering, speaking of the cross, the Father says, and I will be glorified again. 
In other words, just as Jesus' life brought glory to the Father, the cross will glorify him as well. Now, you might be wondering, how could something as hideous as an old rugged cross bring glory to God? What is glorious about a cross, a method of execution like an electric chair or a hangman's noose? The cross was cruel, and it was painful, and it was bloody, and yet, just like Jesus' life, his death on the cross will also reveal God's glory. How so? You see, the cross reveals how holy God is, that God is so holy that the Father would turn away even as his own Son became sin. The cross reveals how just God is, how just is he. He is so just that sin will be judged. It must be judged even if his only begotten son has to receive the punishment for it. The cross shows us how loving God is. How loving is God? He loves you so much, he was willing to pay the highest price to redeem you. The cross reveals how wise God is. God is so wise, he could take something that the world considered foolish, he could take the cross and use it to bring salvation to the world. In all of these ways and so many more, yes, the cross reveals the glory of God. We go back to that prayer that Jesus prayed. If Jesus prayed that the Father would be glorified through the greatest suffering, that means that that ought to be our prayer when we go through lesser suffering. We too follow the example of Christ. We too can say, God, this thing that I'm going through, it's hard. This pill that I have to swallow, it is very bitter and I'm struggling, but will you take this suffering that I'm going through and be glorified in it? We too can pray and say, oh God, may my suffering, even my suffering, be the means through which everyone around me can look at me and see what a great God you are. And God, if that means my suffering ends, amen. But if that means my suffering must continue, amen again. But take my suffering and be glorified in this. Some of you can take this lesson and you can apply it to your life right now because you're there. Some of you, maybe you're not there right now, but you're going to want to hold on to this for later because if you're not there, you will be there at some point. When you're troubled, remember, Jesus understands. He was troubled, and God will be glorified in your trouble, in your suffering. And so we see the glory the cross reveals. We also see in this the victory the cross secures. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus is going to mention some of the things that will happen because of the cross. 
some things which, when you put them together, mean victory. Look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now notice that first statement. Now is the judgment of this world. The word Jesus uses for world doesn't refer to the universe. It doesn't refer to physical creation. No, this refers to the system of this world, the system of this world that is under the influence of the devil, this world that is opposed to God and fights against God and his word. When this world put Jesus on the cross, the world thought that it was judging him, but then Jesus said it turned out that the cross actually judged the world. In what way does the cross judge this world? The cross judges this world in that it settles once and for all what sinful man would do to a holy God if only he were able. The cross answers that question, what would sinful man do to God if he only had the opportunity? Because 2,000 years ago, he did have the opportunity, and he crucified him. And in that sense, the cross is the ultimate indictment on this world It is the ultimate indictment on sinful man. It reveals how sinful and how evil this world is. Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. But that's not all. Notice that second statement. He said, now that his hour has come, the ruler of this world will be cast out. I think we understand he's referring to the devil The question some will ask is, well, why is the devil referred to as the ruler of this world? Again, the world meaning the system of this world. He has authority over this system. He has influence. He has sway over this world. And he does have the power to deceive and to destroy. But notice this. Jesus said, because his hour has come, because of the cross, Quote, the devil will be cast out. Now, it's interesting that Jesus would say that he will be cast out because when you read through the scriptures, what do you see? The devil was cast out of heaven. And then he's cast out of power, cast out of authority. And then eventually, later on, he's cast into the pit, and then ultimately cast into the lake of fire. And so we see this process where he is cast down and down and down again and again and again. And Jesus said it all points to what he did at the cross. I'll admit to you, when I was a teenager, I was a big fan of boxing. Not so much now. I I don't really watch it anymore But I can remember when I was a teenager, when I was growing up, uh, Mike Tyson was in his prime. Yes, I'm that old. Uh, But I watched almost every single Mike Tyson fight. He was short, but man, was was he strong? Still is. I wouldn't want to run into him in a dark alley, that's for sure. 
I don't think I ever saw anybody that hit as hard as he did. And many times, you know, Mike Tyson, he would hit his opponent so hard that from that moment on, the fight was over no matter how long it lasted. He would hit somebody so hard and maybe they would grab a hold of him for a while and maybe they would manage to somehow stay on their feet for a round or two. But from that point forward, the fight was over because the decisive blow had been dealt. Understand what Jesus is saying here. 2,000 years ago, At the cross, Jesus dealt the decisive blow to the devil. Hebrews 2.14 says, Through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. I like that word, destroy. He's been destroyed. In what sense has he been destroyed? He's been destroyed because now, because of the cross, His captives can be set free. And now his stronghold is broken. And now his doom is sure. And yes, he's still powerful. Yes, he still has influence. Peter said he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But as I like to say, the devil is a lion, but he is a lion on a leash. Jesus said he is cast out. Look at verse 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Verse 32 is one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. Uh, So many times, for example, we talk about lifting up Jesus in worship. And that's fine. That is not what he is talking about in verse 32. When Jesus said that he was going to be lifted up, understand that to be lifted up was a phrase that they used for crucifixion. Because when a person was crucified, they placed that cross on the ground, they were nailed to the cross, and then they literally lifted it up high so that everyone could behold the suffering that man or woman endured. And so when Jesus said that he would be lifted up, everyone understood what he was talking about. And lest there be any doubt about that, John then says in verse 33, he said this signifying what death he would die. And so here's the question. What will happen when Jesus is lifted up? What will happen, according to verse 32, as a result of his death on the cross? What's going to come next? He said, I will draw all to myself. Now, in your Bible, you may notice in print that word peoples, I will draw all peoples, is in italics. That's the translator's way of letting you know that verse is not in the original manuscripts. It doesn't appear in the Greek. That's them interpreting the statement for you. But what Jesus literally said, if we just take his words at face value, he said, 
I will draw all to myself. Two things I want you to notice about that statement. He draws them to himself. He doesn't drag them. He woos them. He invites them. He beckons them. He does this by revealing to the lost person his sinful condition and his need for a savior. He does this by giving that lost person uh, a feeling of emptiness apart from him. He does this by giving to that man or woman without Christ just enough evidence, just enough light that they can believe if they are willing to believe. And notice, who does Jesus draw to himself as a result of the cross? Jesus did not say, I will draw all people groups. That would have been a true statement, but that's not what he said here. He did not say, I will draw all nations. He didn't say, I will draw all of the elect. I will draw all who will eventually believe in me. No, he just said, I will draw all to myself. You know what I think that means? I will draw all to myself. That doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved because some people are drawn to the cross and they reject it because they don't like what it says about them and they don't like what the cross requires. But there is this drawing that takes place and everyone experiences, all experience some amount, some kind of drawing in which God is drawing them to himself. And the question simply becomes, how will a man or woman respond to that drawing? We see in this the the victory that the cross secures. The world is judged. The devil is cast out. All are drawn to Jesus. That leads to one final thing I want you to notice about the cross, and that's the invitation the cross extends. Go back to verse 29 for just a moment. Right after the Father spoke audibly to Jesus, this is how the people responded. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. What happens in verse 29 is the culmination of something that John has been doing and building up to in the gospel of John. There's this ongoing theme in John's gospel where man continues to refuse to believe in spite of ever-increasing evidence. For example, Jesus fed the multitude. They all saw it. They knew that it was real, and yet they refused to believe. So what does Jesus do next? Jesus gave sight to a man they knew had been blind for decades. And the Bible says they still refuse to believe. So what does Jesus do next? He raised from the dead Lazarus, a man they knew to have been dead and in that tomb for four days. And what do they do? They still refuse to believe. And so finally, we come to John chapter 12, and God audibly speaks from the heavens. 
and they still refuse to believe. Can you hear the people arguing amongst themselves? I don't know. That sounds like thunder. Oh, come on. What are you, you kidding me? That's not thunder. That's clearly a voice. Well, whose voice is it? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's an angel's voice. wonder what kind of angel it is. Maybe it's a fallen angel. And they're going back and forth and back and forth. I mean, they literally heard God speak. Now, there's a lesson here. The lesson is you don't have to audibly hear God speak in order to believe. But if that's what you are looking for, I guarantee you one thing, you wouldn't believe even if he did. They heard God speak. They still refused to believe. And then notice what they said at verse 34. The people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Okay, sure, we just heard God speak. But Jesus, what is this talk about you being lifted up? You're going to be crucified? You claim to be the Messiah, but you are going to be crucified? Don't the Scriptures teach that the Messiah will live forever? Now, indeed, the Bible does say, God said in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one day this son of David, this Messiah, he will sit on his throne forever, and his kingdom shall have no end. Yes, that's true. It's also true that Psalm 22 says that the Messiah will be pierced. And Daniel 9 says he'll be cut off. And Isaiah 53 says he'll be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. So it turns out the Old Testament says two primary things about the Messiah. It tells us that he will suffer and he will die, but it also tells us that he will live and he will reign forever. How can both of those be true? Jesus completed and fulfilled the former in his first coming, and he will fulfill the latter in his second coming. But I want you to notice what these people are doing, because what they are doing there in verse 34 is very similar to what a lot of people are doing today. They're basically saying to Jesus, we want a different kind of Messiah. We're not interested in a crucified Savior. We're not interested in a Messiah who is lifted up on a cross. We don't want a Savior who will save us from sin. We want a Savior who will save us from Rome. Uh, We don't want a Savior who tells us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and lose our lives. No, we want someone who will make us healthy and wealthy right now and always. So, does this sound familiar? You bet it does. Because this sounds like what most people are looking for today, and it sounds like a lot of the preaching that you hear in a lot of churches today as well. So what is Jesus' response? Look at verse 35. Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. 
He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Jesus, who is the light of the world, was literally with them, but soon he would be gone. Just like the sun provides light during the day, but eventually it sets and the light diminishes and the darkness comes. And so Jesus said to them in the same way, right now, the light of the world is with you. Right now, I am with you. Right now, you have a limited amount of light and you have a limited amount of time that God has given you. Jesus is saying to them, you have this window of opportunity to decide how you're going to respond to this drawing that he mentioned in verse 32. But here's the thing. Eventually, the window of opportunity will end. That was true for them. But you know what? That's true for us as well. While you have the light, Jesus said, while God is still drawing you, while you still have time, believe in the light that you might be sons of the light. I'm reminded of a story in closing about a woman named Janet Kidd who died a few years ago and her obituary appeared in a newspaper in Nashville, Tennessee. And in her obituary, it told the story of how her husband, Ted Kidd, had proposed to her, get this, seven times before they were married. Can anybody beat that record here? I hope not. But six times, Ted proposed to Janet, got down on a knee, pulled out the ring, will you marry me? And six times, for whatever reason, she told him, not yet. Well, Valentine's Day was coming. Valentine's Day is this Wednesday, men. You're welcome. <laughs> Valentine's Day was coming. And so Ted Kidd decided, okay, I'm going to try this one more time. And that's it. He had decided that if she rejects my proposal again, as painful as it might be, it's time for me to move on in life. So Ted took Janet to an elegant restaurant, and he nervously awaited the right time. And just when he was getting ready to propose, he noticed a small gift that she had brought that was gift-wrapped, about the size of a small book. And he looked at that and said, oh, you brought me a gift. Well, what did you bring me? And she handed it to him, and he unwrapped it. And when he pulled it out, it turned out Janet liked to cross-stitch. Not sure how many of you uh, enjoy that particular hobby. But Janet liked to cross-stitch. And when he pulled out that box, there was a cross-stitch that she had already made with just one word, Yes. She knew the question was coming. But this time, she had already decided what her answer would be. And she said yes. You know, maybe God's inviting you to come to Christ and be saved. Maybe until now, you've said, not yet. The invitation doesn't last forever. 
The sun goes down. The darkness comes. Yes is the only appropriate answer to Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage in which Jesus speaks of his own death on the cross and the things that he reveals about the cross. There's a lot of mystery here. There are a lot of things that we don't pretend to understand about this passage, but we thank you for those things we do understand. We thank you for what you do reveal. And we thank you, O God, that you sent Jesus, whose soul was troubled for us, but he was willing to face the cross And rather than run away, he said, Father, be glorified. And so now we look at the cross and we see how the cross reveals your glory. And we thank you, O God, for this victory that is now available to us through the cross because Jesus died on the cross, that we don't have to be a part of this system of the world that has been judged We don't have to be under the dominion of the devil who has been cast out. That we can respond to this drawing as you draw us and woo us and you invite us to come during this window of opportunity, this amount of time in which the light is still shining. And right now you're inviting all of us here place our faith in Christ, the light of the world, that we might be sons of light. And so, God, I pray if there are any here today who've never taken that step, that this would be their day. Maybe for some here today, until now, they've said, not yet, not now, again and again and again. God, I pray that this would be that day in which they simply say, yes, I will follow Jesus. Yes, he's Lord of my life. Yes, I accept him as Savior and Lord. Do, oh God, what only you can do. Knock on the doors of hearts. There's no words that I can preach that can produce that drawing, drawing lost sinners unto yourself. Only you can do that. I plead with you now to take these feeble words that I have preached today as best as I can and and use them to produce that drawing that you would draw people to yourself, that today would be their day of salvation. And God will give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. With head still bowed and eyes still closed for just a moment. Before we close, uh, let me just ask that question. Maybe you're here this morning and until now, your answer again and again, every time God draws you, every time he invites you to be saved, to give your life to Christ, maybe your answer has been, not yet, not yet, not yet. Remember, The invitation doesn't last forever. There's one appropriate response. Yes. I wonder, is there anyone here today that would say, you know what, for the very first time, I'm going to make that my answer. Maybe some of you, years ago, you said yes to Jesus and you've been saying yes to him every day since. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. That's wonderful. Maybe there's some of you today, you need to to say yes to him for the very first time and say, yes, I will follow Jesus. I surrender to him as Lord of my life. Anybody that would say, that's where I am, that's exactly what I want to do this morning. I want to say my yes to Jesus for the first time, that he is Lord of my life today. 
Anybody here today that would say, that's me, pray for me. Or I think, Pastor, I'm ready to take that step just by raising a hand, just so I can know and just so I can see that. You would say, today I'm saying yes to Jesus. If you're watching online, I can't see you raise your hand, but would you please reach out to me? Uh, There's that phone number that you're going to see on the screen. Again, that's our prayer line, 24-7 pray. If you send a text message, just put your name there. And if you reach out to us, if you text us, uh, we'll respond to you in just a few minutes after the service is over. And we'd love to know where you're at spiritually, what God's doing in your life, uh, how we can help you to know Christ or to draw closer to Him. Uh, But thank you for doing that. And that would mean so much to us. I'll be here at the end of the service. If I can minister to you, if I can pray for you, please feel free to come and let me know. Uh, uh, and, and if you have questions, if you want to make an appointment, uh, we'll do that before we leave here today so that we can continue that conversation. But thank you so much for your attentiveness to God's word this morning. 